Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Car Chat. And with me today, I have Gavin Kershaw from Lotus Cars. Sorry. Hi, Gavin. Hi, good afternoon. How are you doing? Uh, Can you tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, I've been at Lotus 30 years. I'm the Director of Attributes and Product Integrity. So it means that through my experience as Vigor Dynamic Engineers and racing, I look after making sure the Lotuses of the future and the current ones have the correct targets set when we're setting new projects out. Okay. And also during the development, driving them and make sure they're, they're honest to those targets and honest to what we want the Lotus to be. Right, right. How, how did you get to here? I mean, it sounds like you've been at Lotus for a while. What did you... Was that? Yeah, um, straight from school, one of those great British apprenticeships where yeah. we were actually interviewed at school and we went in and done a five-year apprenticeship full-time at a college and then day released to a college whilst doing four months in every department within Lotus Engineering from engine building, electronics, vehicle dynamics as a technician. And yeah. I always had a passion for dynamics because I was racing. So going out with a test drive was always a result. What were you racing uh, at the time? I was racing go-karts and then oval racing with all things. So you can imagine the XF1 driver, John Miles, obviously was quite strange to think that I was going around on shale ovals hitting people in a V8 stock car. Um, (laughs) He was most impressed. It had a live axle and I knew what a Watts linkage was at 17 years old. All right. All right. So, and then, and then what did you do? Did you work your way when you went to Lotus from then? Did you work your way through different departments or... 
Yeah, after the full apprenticeship, you then got to choose if you were suited to that. But I chose Vigor Dynamics. So we, I worked as a technician and junior engineer, working with the senior engineers and being mentored through all of the damper tuning, tire testing, obviously suspension move, moving hard points. And always had that passion for vehicle dynamics and then just gradually crept up through the system, became um, the manager of the vehicle dynamics group Mm. and then went as technical head of Lotus Racing when we went back into racing with the Le Mans series, IndyCar or that. Mm. Recently, with big investment and the big change that we, I think, are best suited making sure that the cars of the futures and whatever that may be is, is honest to us. Okay, let's go back. Let's dig into some of these things. When you were doing some of the racing stuff with Lotus, what car what cars were that at the time in the Le Mans series? The Le Mans series we entered the GTE um Evora. So okay. we were up against the the Astons, the Corvettes and the Ferraris of. It was uh in two thousand eleven when we had um the aspirations of going back into Formula One, IndyCar, all the things rallying yeah. So the Evora being transverse engine, it was a real challenge, but we, we finished. We finished in third place in the Intercontinental Trophy. So for us, it was all we could ask for. And the timing, wow, was it stressful. Yeah, I think it was November, the year before Le Mans, we got told that we're going to Le Mans and we were at pre-qualifying um, Le Mans in May with two cars completely new, completely, you know, with some, working with some great engineers and passion. So, yeah, it's fantastic. Wow, that is that is an incredibly short timeline. Were those cars completely done by Lotus? Because I know some manufacturers they go to outside teams and work with them. We had um, what we call uh, everything was built at Lotus. We yeah. we partnered with Cosworth to do the engine, and we actually partnered with a team called Wycom in Italy, doing some of the body work because it was all fully carbon wide body. Yeah. Um, but all the cars were built, tested, um, run by our team itself. We had a partner team, as in Jet Alliance, mm. but uh, our own drivers, engineers um, were running the cars. Yeah, because I think I saw you at Festival of Speed last year with the GT4 car. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Has that, has that been a fun process and I imagine tricky as well? Uh, less tricky because um, when you look at the Avora and the Lotuses of New, they're designed as racing cars, nearly double wishbone suspension, very stiff, very light. GT4 is the perfect pinnacle for that car's racing. So, mm. again, in 2011, we built a GT4 car. I campaigned it 14, 15, 16, where we won the championship. Awesome. Um, and then we wanted, to, we've been out of motorsport a little bit, like we've been out of a few things yeah. over the last few years. So, we saw GT4 as being the perfect springboard back in. And we get to race against, you know, GT4 is growing and growing and it's, manufacturer cars now the porsches and things like this are all built by the manufacturer so we can race against who we sell against and yeah to be against them head to head is you know it's great for our brand that's cool with a fundamentally lighter car than your competitors does that bring more choice in how you build the car for the race track is in like you could add more power or how do you set up this sort of how do you set up the car in your way? Because you could go, oh, let's have loads of power, but a bit heavier and not so good at the corners. Or you could go more to the corners and less power. Yeah, for us, having the ability to be very lightweight gives us the opportunity to say, play the tunes. That if you just went in there with the lightest possible car, but because of the balanced performance, you wouldn't be allowed to have much power at all. Yeah. You struggle against the high horsepower cars at places like Spa. You just can't overtake them. So they overtake you down the straights when there's not too much 
driver trout talent or big dynamic <laughs> talent, and then you have to leave it on the line to go around the corners. So yeah. we have that ability to virtually select what power and weight we run at, which gives us we don't have thermal issue with our brakes. We don't have to, uh, you know, the inertias, things like this. So we can have a really well balanced car which holds its own down the straight lines yeah. as well. What? How much does that car weigh? And um, we're actually ballasted to twelve hundred kilos, okay. so we could actually run that car around about eleven hundred and fifty kilos. But we select to run at twelve hundred kilos. Yeah. And with success ballast, we we were running up to thirteen hundred kilos. Mm. I remember Gidward, you were sort of showing me around the car and we're looking at some of the things. And one of the things you pointed out was how it's designed to be repaired and fixed and not massively expensive to run. Is that correct? Yeah. And that's the same with, you know, the Lotuses and the Avora, the road car, that they have three subframes on the Avora. So there's a front subframe, the middle tub, and then the rear subframe. And you can actually drive the car without any bodywork on it whatsoever. So all the body <laughs> panels are just for cosmetic use or aerodynamic downfalls. So that means as a race team, you know, we've seen the typical racing, you can bump and bore around and it means some new fiberglass panels and some carbon bumpers yeah. and you're not damaging hard points where you only have to be unfortunate with some of the steel and metallic bodied cars where just back it into the tire wall, not a lot of speed. And all of a sudden, you're rejigging, reshelling your car, which meant the Lotus has always, always been a fantastic racing tool. Yeah, that's good. Have you driven them around without the bodywork on, on the track? Yeah, a lot of our <laughs> uh, mule cars, if you remember the very first Elise, there was the famous pictures of virtually like a seven where frog-eyed <laughs> lights on the front and just some plastic wheel arch liners. And often during development, if we're listening for a particular noise or we're, we're just cutting panels, we'll run without a front bodywork or rear clams, things like this. Yeah. <laughs> Does, presumably, having the test track available to you all the time must be a, a pretty great resource for setting up and developing cars. Yeah, the biggest thing is that, it, as you said, it's a test track. It's not a racing track. And what it means is that we designed the track, the shape of it, the radius of the corners, and it's you've driven it. It's very challenging that you're constantly flipping from left to right at maximum lateral G and roll. So you, you're trying to always control the, the inertias and the polar moment of inertia. Mm. So we can go out on the road and drive at road speeds on public highways and very quickly overcheck it on the track that it still behaves well, there's high speed stability. Where some of the other manufacturers who don't have that facility, you're basing your engineers away from home or you spend a week at the Nürburgring testing and then you finally drive it on an, a nice piece of road and it's too harsh, it's too, you know, the tire noise. So we have that fantastic ability just to keep check over checking. And also it's the benchmark where we know lap times, we know performances through corners so if we're doing a project where we're it's an evolution we can see the step gains as well that's interesting off the top of your head could you give me an example of let's say i don't know do you you know what the lap time was from the beginning of the exige to now any idea it was around about a one minute 36 with the two-cylinder or the four-cylinder two 1.8 1.8 cars and we're down now in the as the sort of cup r versions at a 123 122 so we've gained around about 12 seconds around hethel which yeah. is only you know one one and a half minutes long anyway yeah yeah that's 
That's pretty good evolution. When he, can you talk me through some of the, the process of how you sort of design, set up, go through developing a Lotus in terms of like, like what's the process? Like where do you start? And then what, you know, how do you refine it? How does that work? Yeah, sure. Obviously not to give too many secrets away, but yeah, there yeah. is a process and it's not just um, best guess and test. <laughs> it starts with working out where the car sits within the market segment, who are its competitors, what is the customer going to be like who buys it, how are they going to use their car? And we then set the attribute statement around that. So we actually write a document which tells all the engineers that they pick up this book how we want the car to behave, what it's going to be leading at, what do we want the noise to sound like, or where will it be used every day? Mm. We then sit with the engineers and they come back and say, okay, to deliver those attributes, we need the car to have X, Y, or Z technology or stiffness, and also few previous benchmarks where they're internal or external. We then do a lot of simulation and CAE because there's no point building or cutting metal until you have a good idea that you're actually going to meet the targets. Mm. But in parallel with that, if it's a powertrain change or a particular wheel-based track, you can build a mule car. So you take the last version of the car, cut it and shut it, and you end up with these Frankensteins you see in the magazines. Yeah, yeah. And that gives the basis very quickly that you're on the right path or what the challenges are going to be. And then basically as the project matures and you get more mature vehicles, you keep checking your reference, you keep checking it on target. We'll do drives where we have the competitor set cars, previous cars, and we're constantly scoring them. And we score them not for just dynamics, but we call them driven and non-driven attributes. So driven is the obvious ones. How does it sound, feel, accelerate, ride, steer? Yeah. But the non-driven ones are where the controls in the cockpit. How is the effort of the throttle pedal? Is the radio difficult to use or reach? Things like this. So that's that process and it's iterative development. And at that point, you go to your experts and that's where you know my job comes in, where it's signing it off to say, yes, we'll take that as a compromise or no, we can't sign that off yet. We need to push harder. Yeah. What do you think sort of signifies a typical Lotus feel when you're driving it? What, in your eyes, what should a Lotus feel like? I think it's something that we've inherited from the great work Chapman and all the previous engineers done where when you jump in a Lotus, it doesn't feel intimidating. It's a package. It's not just purely about aero. It's not super wide. It's not super powerful. When you talk to the Avaya 2000 horsepower, it's getting up there. <laughs> <laughs> but you get in it, you you drive it, it, you instantly feel connected in it. You feel Part of it, when you sit in it, you see some of the bodywork through the windshield, so you start to understand the width and length of the car. And then as you drive it, it does exactly what you expect it to do with no delay and no fuss. And it's that connection feel that gives you the excitement and you just gain confidence in it. And we say it's like skiing, you know, when you first get it where you do the smallest change of your feet and you get an instant response, you can then start to enjoy it. If you don't get that feedback and instant response, then you're sort of nervous of it and yeah. you don't have that confidence. Yeah, I definitely found that when when I came to the track and drove, what did I drive? The Exige and yeah. the little one. Kind of had a complete... The Elise, yeah. The Elise, yeah, sorry. The Elise and the Exige. And it was my first first laps of that track straight away, I think, like talking and whatever. And I, I think I probably drove off the track a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but I then put the camera away and just drove the Exige. And just had 
a whale of a time. It was that thing. And it was the same with the Evora afterwards. Like five laps in, it's suddenly like, okay, yeah, I'm starting to feel it. I'm starting to get all the stuff. It's starting to make sense. It's clicking. And I just obviously just had the biggest smile on my face ever. I think anyone does when they can get to drive around the track. But one of the things that stood out for me, and it sounds a bit cliche, was the suspension setup. It was, it's, it's firm, but not harsh in any way, shape or form. And just like soaked up all the bumps, you run a curb, no problem, whatever. Whereas if I compare that to loads of other cars from other manufacturers in a similar sort of category, most cars are a lot stiffer or a lot firmer. Is that, why do you think, obviously this is what you're aiming to do, but why do you think Lotuses feel so different to other cars? Is it mainly weight or? Weight obviously helps, but also having that defined character, which is what we said is that it shouldn't feel intimidating. It should feel effortless and enjoyable as a journey. You know, it's, you want to drive it. And we're not obsessed with out and out lap times. You, you know, we're very, very competitive around the ring, but we, you won't see us constantly tuning them. So it's that, that blend of everyday usable, but it's also got a very high performance level on the track. And that's exactly what you said is that you, we want our cars to feel firm, but they never shake your body. You never feel your insides jiggling around and it's like turbulence on a plane. The car should heave with the road and blend with the road as much as it should corner without a lack of roll, things like this. Yeah. Do you think being in the UK as a base leads to that? Because we have a lot of rubbish roads. Whereas if you were based in Germany, they just have quite good roads everywhere. Yeah, we have this debate because obviously China, America, you know, very straight lines. But then from state to state, they have lovely roads and corners. Yeah. Is I think the we we love driving as a nation, as um, you know, we've always done it. We have some quite tricky surfaces. So we have corners, but often we have these B roads, which have got broken edges to them, which um, have just been tarmacked over tarmac and that forces us to have a, an amount of compliance that can't just take your fillings out. Yeah. Where some of the European nations, a large percentage is smooth, very good tarmac, and then they have appalling roads, virtually the Belgian block where you, you can't drive over 30 kilometers per hour. Yeah. So I think our roads lead us to have challenging surfaces, but with flowing roads as well. And even, you know, around Norfolk, the people say that, we can virtually drive from Detroit, which is down the broken concrete A11, yeah. up to Thetford, which has got billiard smooth tarmac through some B roads. And then we have these roads that with yumps and bumps where they've settled along some of the sort of flatter, more flooded land. And you can be leaping the car around. So I think, yeah, within 30 miles of Lotus, we could have virtually driven in every country in the world. Yeah, that's a pretty good... Um good place to be in for testing if someone was going out and let's say myself and i've got adjustable suspension now you'd probably say just leave it as the (laughs) if you guys have set it up i remember walking around the factory and someone said oh yeah we fit you can have optional adjustable suspension just as a way of ruining the ride and handling (laughs) (laughs) but if um yeah if i was going to go out and set up my car and it's got the, the main adjustable things under a bunch of suspension. How would you go out and set up a car on a track? Like what would be the process for trying to get it right for a listener out there who's maybe just got a set of adjustable suspension for their car? 
The big thing with adjustable suspension is what are you adjusting it towards? So the biggest catalyst for performance and different feel is the tyre. So if you're on a fairly normal road tyre, that won't generally stand with much stiffer springs or anti-roll bars than what the manufacturer puts on a standard nearly, especially if we're talking the cars that you know our listeners are listening to. Yeah. If you put a, a Cup 2 or a Trofeo on, if it doesn't have that as standard, all of a sudden it allows you to pull probably 30% more lateral force or G under braking. And so that means you're going to generate more roll. So if you've got that type of tire, then if you're looking at, say, 30% more grip, a good start is probably 30% more spring rate. Um, yeah. If you put a bigger spring in, if you imagine a pogo stick, you've got to then put some damping in to control that energy. So if the car compresses into a swell or a dip, you've got to have that damping in there to stop it just being sprung out of the road. And also if you've got the high spring rate, you probably don't need what we call high speed damping as well. So you can, you can put the low speed in at the first part of the nose of the curve, but you don't need all the high speed, which makes it harsh and horrible. So tire to start with, if, if you want added performance and a little bit of spring rate, and then yes, put a good quality adjustable damper on there. And if now with the selection of parts is don't forget about aero, things like that. People are too obsessed with ride height. Mm. They, they slam their cars down and that generally means that you can move no other suspension part. So if you think that when you move the body within the, the suspension, all your roll centers or your camber change, everything like that is having a dramatic effect. So you're better off tuning it rather than just slamming it down. The odd five, 10 millimeters you can gain from. And then it's geometry. The the performance tires, because they create a little bit more roll, they've got, you need a little bit more camber and toe. But generally it's that, get the, get the catalyst in there first to actually give you some performance gain. Mm. And then if you're, if your car is like, understeering what would be a typical what would you go to first oh, maybe probably the driver <laughs> that makes some difference obviously if it's front wheel drive rear wheel drive four wheel drive is yeah. a big example um often it's camber is the simplest task is if you put some negative more negative camber on the front it'll help just the contact patch staying flatter with the road while it's cornering hard or if you've got a rear-wheel drive car that's un- still understeering, take a little bit of camber off or take a little bit of toe off the rear axle. Or if you've got adjustable dampers on there, stiffen the end that's effectively got too much grip. It's easier to think of the end that's got not enough or too much grip rather than not enough. Right. Um, sometimes that the obsession is to think that you can always gain grip, but the car has a natural amount of grip with the tire, and all yeah. you have to do is balance it front to rear during its cornering oh uh, okay yeah, yeah 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 that sounds sounds about right when you're let's say the avaya this is a yep. whole different kettle of fish to the other cars or is it a sim- is it a similar process with that car it has to be a similar process from day one obviously we've done the the kinematic the compliance and suspension analysis as long with cfd with the aero work obviously mm. you've seen images if not the car the car will produce a large degree of downforce. And with the pushrod suspension, third element damper, it's very much like an LMP2 car, the right. suspension system. You So if you add that with torque vectoring, electronically adjustable dampers, active aero, 
then you can get lost if you're not careful. So you'll see when we first started to drive the car, I went to the and said that we drive it in its purest form. So we turn all this off, we give it a base level of aero, and then we do the tire damping, tire testing, general damping and aero work. Because otherwise, if you've got the young lad in there adjusting the torque vectoring right to left and rear steer and things like this on other cars, you don't know who's controlling what. Yeah. And a lot of the engineers now have the ability to solve an issue for you through aero or rear steer, torque vectoring or geometry. But it's easier to actually read the car in its purest form because it's difficult to turn a bad car into a good one. It's easier right. to understand that it's got a good fundamental basis to start with. Yeah, so you take you take the car, you make it sort the fundamentals out, and then you can play with these things like torque vectoring. Can that car torque vector all four wheels at any time? Yeah, that's what we're working with, the full torque vectoring. Um, and the big difference with that is so that you can build different character at different speeds because these cars have such a bandwidth of performance and usable. People are going to use them in their cities, and other guys are going to do the VMAX wherever possible. Yeah. So you use technology like this because you can program it against vehicle speed or lateral G, um, even some of the systems against GPS. You can change your system and the way the car behaves rather than just handcuffing it to a set of criteria which only suits an hour bandwidth. Yeah. When you're – presumably you, you start to end up with a car that becomes very intelligent – in in a, in a way and is it difficult to keep it sort of to feel like you're driving it at times or is is that a balance that has to be done or does it just feel like it just feels better no, it, it's one of those things where if you imagine formula went, one went through a similar thing when active technology where they could actually roll the car into the corners yeah and we had drivers like prost and senna who were phenomenally quick in the cars but they said they were difficult to drive they were edgy they, they couldn't read that they were just about to fly off the track. Yeah. And this technology can lead you towards that. If you can roll a car into a corner with, you know, active roll control on SUVs, things like this, you can take away some of the natural feel that a body relies on to understand where you are with the thresholds and the limits. So you have to use it to tweak things, but ultimately you want to give enough feedback so the guy knows the driver knows that he's approaching the limit, he's approaching the tyre. Now, we always go back to saying that there's just four pieces of rubber holding you on the ground with some physics around them, and that's what your wrists and your toes are telling you when you're driving. Yeah. Have you had troubles finding the right tyre for the Avaya? Is that quite a tricky thing to do or not so bad? Not so bad. Tyre technology now has, you know, the last five, six years has really, really moved on. And we're working with Pirelli hand-in-hand hand with the performance tyre. And what the phenomenal thing is, I think, again, motorsport has a big offering for this. When you see an intermediate at Le Mans actually still being a slick, that they get their <laughs> damp performance through compound and construction alone, you know that the tyre engineers are really, really on their case. So what the, the nice thing is, is that we're at the upper limits of the speed, you know, mm. the car's doing north of 200 miles per hour, but the tyres still very well balanced, integral. They're designed to run at that speed. Some of the other manufacturers have been challenging much, much higher top speeds. Mm. Where they, it's difficult to know what the tyre will do at those limits and thermal limits. 
So yeah. we're in a really nice working area of the tire to get the maximum from it. And also, if the if your customer jumps in it and it's four or five degrees in the morning, the t- the compound's going to work and it will work at a thirty five degree ambient. So we we're trading all this as well, rather than just purely a, a lap time or an acceleration figure. Yeah, because it's all very well having a tire that works amazingly on track, but if you crash it coming out of the garage. <laughs> Yeah, who knows what the weather's going to be like, you know, half an hour into your journey. So you have to bear all of this into mind. And yes, you can trade your compromises, but, you know, wet performance, cold performance versus ultimate, you know, track performance in a 25-degree perfect ambient, yeah. But then you can give your customers more and more choice around that. But the the base car has to deliver everywhere. Mm. What's been like an interesting or something interesting about working on the Avaya? For me, the Avaya was just how you can get all the technologies to blend together Hmm. and you can still read them as you spend time in the car individually. Right. And I suppose, you know, I've been lucky enough to drive some of the classic F1 cars, but you can imagine the drivers, you know, like Rosberg, Hamilton, things like that, where they can feel nuances in a car that's got so much performance, it saturates the normal brain. Yeah. As you work with the car, you can generally feel if it's a good chassis with very, very small changes. And you make a small change to a, a damper setting or a tire, and you can just see it's opened up a new avenue of performance for you. And I think that's always rewarding when the car responds to change and just gets better and better and better. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Yeah. Do you get to drive any of the old F1 cars? Yeah, I've driven probably 50, 60% of them. So from the 25 through 72 um, the double down or the downforce car, and also lucky enough to spend quite a bit of time in the T125, which was the ultimate corporate toy that we did a few years ago, which, you know, again, is exhilarating. That looks like a pretty mental bit of kit, that one. Are, they, are there still some of them around? Yeah, there's about eight being actively used. Uh, you'll see that it's, it, the project was bought by a company called Rodin in New Zealand, oh, and they're okay. yeah, in yeah. the car now. Yeah, I was lucky enough to probably drive the first ones and the last one, and there was a big step change in between. But again, Pyre opened up the performance of that, that we had uh, Roman Grosjean test the car early on, and he could cope with the car, but mere amateurs like myself in comparison (laughs) couldn't. 
and we needed a softer tire that gave up after five laps along with your neck where yeah. guys like him wanted a harder tire that they could lean on for 20 laps so tire development and also aero as well you know that car um, delivers so much aero that it virtually stalls at just under 200 miles per hour in acceleration <laughs> But it does mean with no ABS and traction control that you do have the the confidence to just stand on the brakes and push really, really hard to slow it down. It must be mental driving, you know, the full spectrum of cars around the same track and then, yeah, getting in something like that or one of the old Formula One cars and just experiencing this the craziness end of the spectrum. Are there any particular interesting points or challenging things about designing a car like that were you involved in that car yeah uh, it was part of the projects when i was uh, head of motorsport Hmm. was again the type of person who's going to buy it you know it's the type of person who is probably in a in a good position to be able to afford a car like that at the time and someone who's passionate enough to want to drive on a track but they're generally not racing because they could have gone out and done f3 f2 things like this or historic monoposto but they wanted to experience Formula One basically limits performance acceleration but in their own world. And often it's you've got to keep them nearly safe from themselves. So we had to make the car quite easy to drive. It's why it only revved, only revved to just over 10,000. But it had maximum torque from around about 5,000 RPM. So it meant that you, it wasn't gear sensitive. If you chose a gear somewhere between fourth and fifth, it will go around the same corner. Um, and again, oversaturating it with downforce. And as we did, we had, as we well knew, we had a Lacey driver and James Rossiter. Yeah. They criticized the car because it was a little bit, you know, boring in effect. And then you think that one thing that car's not is boring. And I think that's, <laughs> that's the same as just giving that performance to as many of the customers and people as you can. Yeah, that must be quite tricky. Did you have anyone come and like, with that car that's just not driven anything in the same remote category Do people just go like oh, okay i've got a sports car and then i'm going to drive this f1 car what yeah i won't name names but we had a customer who bought one and he had never ever done a lap of a single race circuit in his life <laughs> and we took that customer from from that experience through to being only nine seconds off a Formula One race pace round there. That's, that uh, seems seems pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. It, it takes a few years, and obviously the car responds from it with data and things like this. But also showing that person that you don't have to drive a Formula One car first, you know, yeah. driving. We had a Navora, you know, we used to do lap and lap after Navora and get the accuracy there and understand, again, physics, how to apply the throttle before you go and jump into effectively a modern day Formula One. Is there anything especially difficult about driving something like that versus, let's say, an Avora? Or is it just quicker? It's very, very fast. And it is slightly number that I've, been, I've done a lot of racing in GT3, GT4s, and even mm. some of the older Group C cars. And they're more like a sports car to drive. They, they tell you where you are on the limit. They're more the G-forces you're putting your body through and more normal, you know, two, two and a half G is very high for a GT3 car where all of a sudden that car, you need to have the speed, you need to have the confidence because if you can go flat through a corner and not lift, it's actually safer than messing about with the throttle. And I can always remember um, 
the windsock corner at Heather was just over 165 miles per hour in a T125, which when you look at it is just seems impossible. Yeah. But actually it felt just as scary at 120, 130. <laughs> is that quite a linear curve? Like if you go a bit faster, just a bit more grip, a little bit faster, a bit more grip. It is, but um, I'm not built to find where the edge of that curve is, you know. <laughs> For me, this flat world would still be flat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you said you'd been involved in some Group C racing. Yeah, I was lucky enough that one of the um, gentlemen I drove through GT racing, AMR1, the Aston Martin Group C car. Right. So we, several years ago, we raced that along with David Leslie, which was a real pleasure. And just to experience just how physical those cars were, just for heat steering efforts going through craner curves where you actually had to drive it like a monkey and sort of put your wrists up over the top of the steering wheel just to hold it and get it to steer from right to left you think you know these guys were doing multiple stints at Le Mans in those cars and just every effort the brakes but again just a new performance level for you as you as you're going through your sort of driving career That's no, it's really cool. I go to some of the Peter Auto like classic events and, and I take photos at them and I see the guys racing the Group C cars. And I just look at people racing Group C cars now and I just don't get it. I just don't understand why. Like It looks obscene, but it also looks just incredibly dangerous. <laughs> yeah, and um, I think my closest to that is I was lucky enough to drive a Lotus 30, an ex-Jim Clark car at Silverstone mm. Classic. And for... Uh, general testing on the Thursday we had it as a Le Mans series and I pulled up in the collecting area in an open top Lotus 30 with little skinny Dunlops on next to the Peugeot Le Mans car from only four years ago (laughs) and the ex Schumacher Group C car and head off onto a circuit with a Pescarola behind you in something that's you know from the late 50s. That must be quite an interesting experience being on track with that lot. Yeah, I think they thought I was a head case. I'm, I'm breaking it sort of well before the 300-yard board, and they're, they're going through maggots, becketts, absolutely flat. So I've never spent so much time looking in the rearview mirror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It always is getting people... They're not... I, I, I spend a bit of time racing radicals, and um, you always get this thing, you're on a track day, and they're like, don't overtake in the braking zone. And you sort of, in a car like that, and it's, it must be similar for like LMP type things, it's like, well, it's not my braking zone. <laughs> yeah, define your braking, braking zone. for 200 metres and I'm still flat for another 200 metres, wh- where's that grey line? <laughs> yeah, you can see where, I think Le Mans struggled with it, isn't it? Just the speed difference and the capacity of the cars. And then the what they did with the Porsche 919, just showing that that type of car, that size, can be faster than a Formula 1 car and oh, the wow. IDR since. So, yeah, I think performance differentiation has started to become a problem within racing as well, isn't it? And we've all done some of these cool 24-hour races where anything from a Saxo through to a full GT3 car is on the grid. Yeah, that's bonkers. There's that one at Silverstone, the Beckett? Brick car, brick car. Um, Oh, the Burkitt. The Burkitt, yeah. Yeah. And it's like a relay and basically anyone can do it. Yeah, people have tried to get me to race in the 25-hour 2CV race at Snedderton, where oh. they have up to 10 engine changes per, through the nine. So <laughs> I've always avoided it. <laughs> I've done a, a little bit of the, C, the Citroen C1 
racing. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I did the 24 hour one at Spa. Uh, I've, I've done that twice now. And, and we have uh, two CVs as well. They have like two CVs running, then the C1s, and then they have these sort of like prototype two CV things that people have just gone mad, mad on. And it's like three class of car, but the two CVs going around spa, it takes them like four and a half minutes or something ridiculous. <laughs> That's where the briefing tells you how to get out of an upside down car, isn't it? Yeah, that, that sort of thing. We had, when, whenever it got to a yellow flag or a safety car, the, the two CVs can't keep up. Right, okay, yeah, the safety car slows down, yeah. It's all good fun. Do you see Lotus at some point in the future making an unlimited race car for jokes? Presumably that'd be a cool project to work on. I think Lotus is, you know, always looking at innovations and the way we do it. And the Avaya was a statement of intent that I think a few years ago people would have laughed at us if we said we're going to do it. Mm. But the minute we, we went, and actually people saw it, it was announced, they see the technology within it. People know it's not a joke and it's very, very serious. And, you know, we've seen the videos online with me driving it and the other test drivers. So you can never rule anything out from Lotus, but we've got, we're busy at the moment anyway. Yeah. Uh, even in lockdown, we're busy. So um, I think we you know, what we're going to achieve in the next few years is already enough. And, you know, going back into racing with GT4s and things like this, is exciting and it's always great just to go to the track days and see the amount of loads that's going around as well yeah yeah it's really cool I, it's, it's so boring when you watch a race series and it's just you know one manufacturer or one one make is fine but like you know it might just be audi and toyota at le mans or something like that you want to see the full breadth of cars you want to see all the british brands out there yeah definitely well i normally wrap these up with Five questions. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. First question. Five car garage. Unlimited value. Five car garage for me would be a Sport 300 Esprit. Yeah. Just because I was involved with building some of the ones that went to Le Mans for the homologation and they were just fantastic nesting those around. I owned an RS500 Cosworth Sierra. Oh, wow. A, a Moonstone Blue one, which I couldn't give away which now I couldn't even afford to buy. So <laughs> I think I'd have to have one of those back in there. Probably a 340R Lotus. Again, fond memories of something that unique, driving around and was good power to wait, fun to drive. Mm. Does it have to have a number plate on the front of it? No. A Type 72. There's some lucky people who own them around the world. And i just done a few laps in some, and they're so rewarding to drive, pleasurable. And... You, we even, you know, when you see Emerson being brought back to tears at Goodwood when he drives his old one, that's mm. how, how great they are to drive. And then it has to be in a via because the the performance, like we said, the bandwidth of that car is just phenomenal. Yeah. You know, for me, I know there's guys who go back in time and they're into their old Ferraris and stuff like that, but I enjoy generations of vehicle dynamics and just driving, having fun. And... I enjoy the driving side as much as how the car looks and feels as well as yeah. that. So, yeah, you know, and after 30 years at Lotus, it's, you know, it's hard to move away from that brand when we've done so much. Yeah, yeah. And you've got so many memories in all of these cars. Have you got any funny testing stories? Just funny stuff that's happened? That you've- yeah, probably some stuff. Um, <laughs> obviously, 
Matty Becker, who is well known within the vehicle dynamics world um, at Aston, and his father was at Lotus. We used to spend multiple times driving cars, testing, and we used to use Bridgestones on the Elise. And we went to their proving ground, and within 10 minutes of being there, we were starting to play in effect. And we mm-hmm. went round a, I went round a corner that they hadn't really explained what it was. We went round it, and we must have spun probably 15 times just round and round and round and ended up in the grass. And they came running out and said, why did you do that? That was the aquaplane section where they actually inject <laughs> an oil into the thing. And you could ha- when we got out of the car, I couldn't actually work out what had gone wrong, but we actually fell over. We couldn't stand up on it. Oh, amazing. Yeah, so that's within 10 minutes of being at a proving ground where you're in an in- invite there. So it – and – just the journeys and experiences, you know, driving cars across the Alps, coming back from Nardo back to England in one stop in two separate cars, and just the people you meet as well. You know, yeah. the journalists, you know, been we've all grown up together, you know, all the names, you know, that now you sort of see on the TV. Yeah. They, they were boys at magazines, and <laughs> I was always brought into doing the drifting, so they had an autocar drift competition. Yeah. And I won it, I think, three or four times on the of the year on nice. the trot. So Colin Goodwin actually took me to America for Automobile Magazine. And it was England versus the USA's best. Nice. And I um, got to the hotel. There's Jeff Gordon, Travis Pastrana, all of these guys. And they go, right, there's a Corvette, there's a Porsche, there's Goodyear's Proving Ground. We're going to monitor you and do a drifting against all, you know, and you knew these guys, you watched them on the yeah, yeah. the night before going around Dover in an NASCAR. And I won that somehow. And, was, and oh, amazing. Just these little proud moments, you know, and I say, and often it's the cars, but also engineers, you know, like Matthew's dad, Roger, John Miles, and designers as well, seeing Julian Thompson and Russell Carr and stuff like that, deep into their work and explaining their passion on their side of the mm. story, I think. They're, they're the stories for us. Yeah, yeah. No, it sounds sounds like you've had a lot of a lot of good memories and a lot of good, good times, specifically hooning around. Do you, are you often out on track now? Do you get to yeah. just and then do you just go for a hoon, or is it always always business? <laughs> it's always business, and simply because the there's always new engineers coming through the system, and what I like to do as well is that. As we said, our cars are more than just about the vehicle dynamics side. Yeah. So I'll often take the guy out who is in charge of interiors or seating or the way that the the dashboard infotainment works yeah. and show them what we're doing with cars, how we enjoy it, how a little bit more support in the seat in the bolster area will make it feel better through here or more comfortable. So part of my job is, you know, let's say hooning around, but for a reason to let people experience the car, experience the level of the cars. Yeah. And also when they're working at a, a CAD station, zooming in and out of a wireframe drawing, just seeing what that car is put through when we test it around the circuit is good for focusing them. And, you know, just saying, look, when we, when we say we're obsessed by lightweight, this is the benefit from it. Yeah, that must be huge being able to, you know, pull all these people in from just across the road and say, this is why this is it. And because it's, 
every now and then I get in a car and it's got something's just like in a stupid place or doesn't work or any of these things when you're actually using it and you just bang your head against the wall like how has the person who designed this not been in it driven it seen how this just doesn't work yeah and you know it's sometimes it's easy to understand how they slip through the net if it's not constantly monitored and when you've got passionate people in all the departments you can grab them but when it's Deliveries tight, timeframes are tight, constraints are tight. Mm. You have to fight for, you know, what the end, the customer doesn't have a compromise. He has a choice of car. He's been saving up or his aspiration to own this car. So you have to deliver what you have you promised with just the styling alone. So, yeah, that's why we really, really fight for it. And one of the things we say is we hate is because it's difficult to use, difficult to understand. and. Right. If you get in a car and it's one of those that you just don't know how to turn the radio on, off, put a postcode in, you know, adjust the driving mode, yeah. then the guy did get it wrong. Yeah, yeah, totally. You spend like 15 minutes working out how to adjust the seat. Yeah. Okay. If you could only drive one car for the rest of your life and you're allowed like a 500-pound car with four seats on the side, so it could be a sports car, what would it be? Exige 430. Because each 430 and not like a cup. Is there a cup? Yeah, the cup. Yeah, the cup 430, yeah. So that is mind-blowing performance, and it just cheers you up. It, it, you get in it, you feel alive, you, it talks to you in every way, the performance, the noise. And for us, it was a real eureka moment when we, when we got that level of power and performance mm. out of that car. And you can forgive the world a lot of things if you you drive one of those on a sunny day. For sure. I got to drive on on the road when we did a thing at Bista, and but it yeah. was soaking wet. And I drove it for sort of 40 minutes or something in the wet and came back, hand the keys back, and it was just there like, yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> it does, like you said, just delivers on all the things you need. Yeah, and when... You know, I've got um, two children and a, a wife, obviously, and a dog. So it's probably not practical, but they can have their own car. I'll, yeah, I'll yeah, just have exactly. that and disappear on a Saturday morning. <laughs> what do you look at and get, think, what do you think is undervalued at the moment in the car world? Undervalued in the... Um, like a car. I think it's some of the the mainstream cars, like the Fiestas and things like this. Mm. You know, when you take a good Fiesta ST, just how passionate even Ford have to be to deliver a car like that. And I think their, their moment has always had that, the, you know, the, the RS 2000s, the Mark one escorts, things like this. And they've, they've kept that honesty through their brand and they always deliver, you know, good ride, great steering as much as they can, a fun aspect. But when you can jump in a car and it's got all of the technology or the wireless connection and infotainment delivered. So, you know, any person can get in it and pair their phone and call someone, make a, a voice call or talk to the car. I think that their engineers are, are on top of it as well. So I think yeah, just totally. the, the usability of that, that nature of the entry-level car. It is. I, I think the, the Fiesta ST just stands out as like the small bang for buck car, does everything, fun, looks cool, tick. Yeah, and I think you know, I think it, and it's great because there must be so many reasons not to do it, and yeah. the passion to do it. Yeah, totally. 
Okay, final question. What's the most interesting car to you at the moment? Got a sneaky suspicion as to what that might be, but what do you find yourself looking up, reading about, or thinking about? Obviously, we're we're at the very tip of the funnel with technology, things like this. We have to look laterally what people are doing. And I think the Taycan's really interesting. Mm. The the bravery, I think if the acceptance of electric vehicles will be influenced heavily by, in our customer set, people using that for a, a little while. Yeah. And I think it, it's underlined that making that decision a few years with fire was the right one. Yeah. Um, I think it was going to be difficult. So I think you have to admire that car for what it's done. And also the way that they can make a 2.3 ton car feel relatively alive. And again, the technologies that they've embraced into that with rear steer and arc and active roll control, things like this. So yeah. that's an interesting proposition. And then for us, we're looking at the cars that you see with the the dashboards and screens that have the augmented reality into it, how that's going to interact with driving. So the car, what the car's looking at, what the car's thinking about, you know, it's, I'm sure like all of us, we, we don't make the best passengers. Yeah, yeah. When a car's approaching a T-junction, you want to see them covering the brake or the horn, something like yeah, this. Yeah. So how these man- technology companies are battling that until we're happy to sit there chatting away and assuming it's not going to crash for us. So I think for us, we're looking at that technology and this, the SAE show is always interesting for us to see those the screen technology and mm. I think that's what's going to open up driving to a new level as well. Yeah, it's quite it's, it's quite interesting. You see, you see, um, who was it? I think it was Rimac. They have like a driver training mode in the car when you're on track, and it sort of like flashes up like that's where the braking point is, and all these sorts of things on the screen in front of you. Yeah, I think we've got Gran Turismo to thank for a lot of that, um, yeah. and obviously we look at it and we're interested in it, and it's. Having raced is where you feel the tire get warm and you realize that perhaps the car starts to oversteer more yeah. in three laps time than it did the lap before. The computing power and the sensors required to tell you that you can't brake there, is it that intelligent or is yeah. it a grand, you know, a computer game where it, the parameters like that don't change? It doesn't have a derate mode in this you know, the yeah. tire system or, you know, even that someone's dropped some fluid. And that's one of the things where I'm lucky enough that we have some Volvo fleet cars and we, we drive the XC90s with lane assist mm. and things like this. And we generally turn it off because it can make you a little bit not linked to your car. And the amount of times I've driven down the highway and you see a ratchet strap from a truck <laughs> laying just into the fast lane and you think, well, I'm glad I didn't have lane assist on because that probably wouldn't move to the, the right by a couple of inches and miss the ratchet strap. Yeah. So I think yeah, it's, yeah. it's that technology, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, there's times when some of those things I found it really useful. And then I had a rental car recently. I can't remember what it was. And you couldn't turn off the lane assist. Like it, it, without pulling fuses or something, you didn't seem to be able to do it. And it was unbelievably annoying. Like you go anywhere near the edge of the lane, it was like that pushed yeah. you back. But it's, I'd, I'd, I'm very happy to get to a point where there are cars that you just get in the back and they take you where you want to go. Yeah. Like as long as it's 
they're safe and whatever. I'm fine with that. But equally, I do love driving at the same time. So but each has its place, I think. There's definitely a trade. And I think that when it, we call it nearly commute assist, where you're not interested in the the last breaking point or overtaking everyone yeah. on the way to work and you're tired and it, it, those systems do save you. And an active cruise control now when it's well calibrated is fantastic. And I think if we can embrace these technologies as we did with ABS and traction control and things like this. Yeah. Seatbelts. Seatbelts. Yeah. Um, we'll gain from them, but let's do it, you know, for Lotus, for the drivers, let's do everything for the, so you feel a benefit from it. Yeah. Having those systems there, like you said, to get you to the track or I've never been sort of more tired. I think when I either when I've been like a race weekend and then you've got to drive home or you've been on a track day and you've got to drive home. You just want to get in the car and it just get you there. I've just not bothered about driving at all at that point in time whatsoever. Yes, I think. And, you know, it's tiredness, fatigue, mood. That you know that people now with the systems on board, they can they're aware of what emails they get. So if someone sends them a a non-constructive email, mm. their mind's just not on the child walking across the road, stuff like that. Yeah. So perhaps if with eye tracking and things like this, if you can notice that the guy's distracted or he's using the media, switch on everything because <laughs> he he's not at that point. And I think it's that interaction between the systems which we're really going to benefit from. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. No, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, really good. Really good to speak to you again. Yeah. Through the Lotus stuff. And um, yeah, hopefully I'll see you soon somewhere. Yeah, hopefully. Um, unless we're going to build a sort of three meter car, we're probably not going to be side by side for a little while. So um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll have to do ducks and drakes around Hethel in something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or maybe some single seaters. Yeah, single seats. We'll get some C125s back or some 72s perhaps off Clive. That'd be great. That'd be great. Cool. Well, thanks very much. Okay, take care. Stay safe. Cheers. Speak soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.